Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, a couple of quick things. I was sad to see that it wasn't raining today, uh, which is unusual. The reason I was is because the church hall is open, and I was all excited that because it was raining, we would all learn to go through. Uh, but anyway, if you're like, the church hall, what's that? It's the old cafeteria downstairs where we have lots of random stuff happened throughout the week and uh, in the life of our church, and it flooded uh, whenever that was last fall, and we've been working on it for a while. So that's all done. Thanks to Stephen, Matt McCarty, getting all that taken care of. Um, there's a lot of work. There's a new drain and a sump pump, and I don't, I don't know what, they don't, I don't know about that stuff, but go take a look at it. It, um, it looks good. And also, thanks to everyone who came last week for All Together Sunday. About once a quarter or so, we gather all the kids here. We, we close Sojourn Kids, and some of that is the way we want to invest in the next generation. We want them to hear what mom and dad are doing while we're at church. And for us, it's a, it's a tangible reminder. Some of, some of you probably didn't come because it was aggravating or the noise or the distraction, but when you realize like children are a blessing from the Lord and you hear all these noises, it's evident of God's gifts to us and his kindness to us. And so uh, we're real thankful for that. Um, thank you guys for coming last week. And then uh, every week, this happens ongoing. You know, our, our services are kind of structured. We call it the liturgy and we have our giving time. And that's where we return to God some of what he's given to us. And there's lots of reasons we do this. Uh, some of this is because it's commanded by God and we believe that when we trust him, uh, when we obey him, it reshapes our souls. So you've heard us talk about giving as an act of protest, right? Like we're protesting against the world that says you need more. You have to look out for number one. We're saying, no, 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 we're, we're fighting against that idea. We're gonna be a different kind of people here. Uh, but, but also it allows us to fund the stuff that we do in and around New Albany. So things like, if you weren't aware of this year, Stephen's name's coming up again. Last week, we served uh, all of the faculty, the teachers of New Albany High School. We do, he and Pastor Gary do this huge cookout with a whole mess of student volunteers uh, to serve the teachers, to serve the faculty. In a few weeks, we're gonna hand out um, school supplies to hundreds of, of kids here in the area. School's getting ready to go back. And, and all of that is because of the faithful men and women who give week in and week out here. So we're, we're grateful for the work. This isn't like some backhanded give more thing. This is trying to be encouraging right now. I mean, the last three years, our giving's gone up by 10% or more every year. Like you guys are really responding and that sounds like a sign of health and maturity. Uh, and at the same time, behind the scenes, we're trying to get some of our systems better uh, to make it easier to do the things we do as a church. And one of the big things we've been working on is our website. Uh, and maybe some of you have experienced the joys of the city. Uh, who loves using the city? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right, thank you. I know some of you have been calling it for years that I know, okay, it's the best you can do, whatever. Uh, if you love the city, I would, get, I would use it now, right? I would use it while you still can. Um, but so there's ways that we're trying to get better, particularly with giving. So we've got a new website now and there's a new giving portion of it. And it's really easy, you just set this button and it sets up recurring giving, set it and forget it. You guys remember that old infomercial? I don't remember what it was for, but you set it, automate what's important to you. That's uh, one way. There's been a team of folks behind the scenes making that easier, making our text messaging easier. You know, you can text, give. Uh, and so check that out when you go home. I think our new website's really pretty and uh, easier to use. And now there's kind of three big ways you can give in the service or online. One is our website, two is texting, and then look at this. Ooh, uh, Sojourn Church, there's an app for that. Um, so we're, 
we're changing the way we do a lot of our database management internally and our giving internally. And one of the perks this new company has is they make a customized church app for you. So you'll be able to just press a button on your phone if you use that thing and, and give right in the service. You'll be able to get electronic copies of your bulletin and announcements. So that's coming in a couple of weeks. Uh, they're rolling it out now and doing, getting all the kinks worked out. So uh, stay tuned to that. Easier giving is on its way. A new app is on the way feel free to go check that out. You'll be hearing more about it in the next couple of weeks. And uh, it's kind of, this is totally coincidental. Bobby's been working on that for like a year, and there's been a, a whole host of teams working on that for a long time. And it's just kind of coincidental that lands here because James, he has a story for us in the beginning of chapter two that has to do with our money. Um, so the first chapter is, if you remember, is kind of all big abstract concepts. You know, he talked about suffering. He talked about temptation. He talked about wisdom. And in chapter two, he gets kind of real boots on the ground. He starts getting a lot more practical. And he talks about this story about money. Um, as he tells us this story, as we listen to these instructions he has here, we, we get a window into what made the early church so powerful. Um, if you've never studied church history, I highly recommend you do so. If you're like, what book should I read? Just send one of the pastors an email and we'll let you know. Um, there's books out on our How We Grow Well from time to time. Uh, but you have this small group of people who had an illegal faith uh, that were by and large uneducated on the margins of society, and they ended up changing the world. Uh, it's probably the most dramatic impact any group of people's ever had on the world. And their beginnings were so incredibly humble. They worshiped a homeless guy who was executed, right? It should cause us a, a bit of pause. It's whether you believe in Jesus or not to ask the question, how did this happen? Uh, what's going on? And, and a lot of the roads of what made the early church so unique was this concept that has its roots in the Old Testament in Judaism and really crystallized in the ministry of Jesus. And it's, it's this idea of the imago Dei. That's the image of God. And so you have this small group of people that come into the world saying, all people have inherent value and dignity before God. It doesn't matter your class. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't, if you are a human being, you, you are the most precious possession in all of God's creation. And in, in the Roman day, in the early church, this showed up in two practical ways. Uh, the image of God, on the one hand, it, it elevated uh, the value of human beings. And what this looked like where it was most stark was in their commitment to sexual purity. Their commitment to sexual purity. They said human beings are so valuable that, that things like casual sex, if, if you think sex is just this physical thing, boy, you are totally confused about what's going on here. People are far too precious for that. And, and so they actually made sexual purity a, a requirement of leadership as opposed to sexual I don't know, multiple partners being a perk of leadership. So if you wanted to lead in the church, you had real close stringent requirements on your sexuality. What's more, if you wanted to just be a member of the community of the church. And this was very, very strange. So on the one hand, you had this, this newfound elevation of the worth of a human that showed up in sexual purity. And then it had this devaluing of human possessions. So they were sexually pure, but financially promiscuous right? So it's this total reversal of power where they were suddenly giving stuff away and meeting people's needs. And this is hilarious, the stuff that, that lasts in history. Um, there's Emperor Julian was writing about Christians. He's writing to one of his uh, pagan priests, and he's complaining about the Christians, which is kind of amazing. Why is the emperor even paying attention? What's, what must it say about this small group of people that the most powerful man in the world is paying attention to them? And listen to the complaint he levies against the Christians. 
He says, nothing's contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. So this guy's saying like, the reason these crazy superstitions keep circulating is because they won't stop taking care of people. Like the thing that made them so strange was the way they related to other people and not just to other Christians, the way they related to people outside of the church. So the emperor is observing what happens when people take what, what James has for us this morning seriously. When we embody the gospel and take it seriously and live as though it's true, he's showing us the effects of what happens. He's showing us the effects of what happens if, you're, if you have enough courage to treat the Bible like it's true. And isn't it interesting what shook the power, the house of power, or the place of power in that day? You know, that Emperor Julian wasn't like, these Christians with their well-ordered worship gatherings, or like these Christians with their dynamic communicators, or these Christians with their amazing curriculums, or you know, what took, what brought people in power to notice, what, what shook the foundations of the empire was the way Christians related to other human beings in and outside the church. So this, this, passion, this passage that James has for us is fundamentally relational. It's about the way we relate to one another and what happens when the gospel becomes real for us. So we'll be in James chapter two, verses one through 13. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word and we'll hear what he has to say. This is James chapter two, verses one through 13. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal laws found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, you must not commit adultery, also said, you must not commit murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say, whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So he starts right off the bat here. Um, with this invitation for us to embrace this common ground we have as the image bearers of God. So look what he says in verse one. My dear brothers and sisters, you see the affection there, These, my beloved people. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Okay, so this has been making me uncomfortable for like a month now, and I hope to, for the next half an hour to go on a journey of discomfort with all of us. Um, what is it that, that James says is the litmus test for our faith? 
But you notice he doesn't say like, how can you claim to have faith in Jesus while having such terrible theology? Like, how can you claim to have faith in Jesus when you have such lackluster worship? How, how can you claim to have faith? What's he say? How can you claim to have faith in Jesus if you favor some people over others? This, this is inherently a relational test here, right? So when, on judgment day, God will listen to what we have to say about our faith. He'll be like, all right, now if that's true, it'll have shown up in your relationships somehow. Let's take a look at your relationships here. And this word favor here is really interesting. It was invented, as best we can tell, the New Testament writers invented it. Uh, to this kind of new concept that would have been real foreign uh, to Greek culture. The idea is uh, what it literally means, the, the actual translation of the Greek phrases, it means receive the face, which I think sounds kind of funny. I receive your face, you know, like... And the, the idea is, what it, it's making judgments based on someone's external appearance. This must have been a huge issue in their day. How can you say that? He's writing about it, right? He's not like, here's something that's totally irrelevant to you. I'm going to write part of my Bible about it. No, it's like, that was a big deal then, and it's still a huge deal to us today. So let's take a minute and think about all the ways that we treat people based on external appearances. We make snap judgments about people based on external appearances. I visit other churches all the time. Okay, I'm going to air up my own laundry right now. And you walk in and I look at the signs. Bobby and I always like talking about the signs other churches put up. And it's like, do you believe that sign? That must be a bad church then because they said something ridiculous on their sign. And then I feel guilty about it, okay? I'm not celebrating that factor. I'm not saying that's a good holy thing. Maybe you walk in and you hear the music and then it's like, it's loud and it's weird. This is not a real church, right? They don't sing the songs I like to sing. We have verses for loud music just as a side note, if that's you. You ever, you guys remember that the election a couple of years ago? Remember that, Trump, Trump and Hillary? Remember that? I remember that. So imagine, imagine for a second, and pick whichever one you didn't like and, and put it in that, okay? Uh, imagine you're going to, you're on your way to work, right? And you run a little bit late and someone cuts you off and they've got the I'm with her sticker on or they've got the Make America Great sticker on. And you see that, and you're like, I knew it. Those people, right? Oh, my gosh. All, all libs just blank. All you conservatives just blank. You find out, you go to somebody's house, and you find, see a book on their bookshelf, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I knew it. They're one of those. You find out they're a Democrat. You find out they're a Republican. You make this snap judgment. I can, I can remember, I spent a lot of time in Nashville when I was younger and depressed and confused. And Anytime you were out in public, Anytime, and you were talking to somebody, if a door opened, you're at the coffee shop, and you know you hear that ding when the door opens, everybody peeks over to see, is this somebody more important? No. Okay, then I can keep talking to you. You ever been at a dinner party? Someone shows up in a fancy car, and all of a sudden you're like, man, they look so interesting. I'd really like to talk to them. Uh, someone comes in well-dressed, and you feel this, this draw to them. I mean, have you ever made or formed opinions on someone simply based on external appearances? Yes. <laughs> Yes, you have. All of us have. This is what James is exposing in this hypothetical situation about the wealthy and the poor person coming to a gathering on a, a Sunday. And notice what he says in verse 4. Doesn't this discrimination show your judgments are guided by evil motives? Deciding how you will relate to someone. So when you think about favoring, it's like, who will you, uh, who will you give the benefit of the doubt to? Who, who will you assist who will you show affection for? Who will you care for? Who will you go out of your way for? Deciding how you do that based on external appearance, James is saying that's evil. 
there's something evil motivating you to do that. And there, you know, this totally defies the notion of the image of God, but James gives us two other real big reasons right here in the text about why doing this is so anti-gospel. It's a, it's, it's a rejection of Christianity. I don't know how else to say it. The first one, he says, it's rooted in the mission of God. So look at verse five. He says, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? This isn't saying that God loves poor people more than he loves wealthy people, any more than it's saying all wealthy people take all poor people to court. Like, it's not saying that. It's an illustrative example. What this is saying is that faith is typically easier for the poor. And, and how do I know that? Well, have you ever been poor? Like, like, like bills do, I don't know where the money's coming from poor. You know, like we're gonna go out to eat or I need, not out to eat, like I need food or I need to make my car payment. And, you know, we sing a song here sometimes where it says, you know, like when our backs were against the wall. You ever felt that way in life? You look around and there's no, you don't know what to do and you don't know the way out. And that's when you look up and say, help me Jesus, right? Like faith is what happens in the lives of the poor when they're out of options. And typically wealthy people have far more options, far more connections than the poor do. And what's interesting is that history shows us that the mission of God, uh, great revivals where people get saved, where the, the church grows, the darkness and culture is pushed back. It's not every single time, I don't think, but boy, is it close. The revivals almost always start amongst the poor. Why? Because they're rich in faith. It's not hard for them to trust the unseen provision of God because they have no other options. And so God goes to the margins and uses those places to build up the church. This is what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians. He says, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Why would he do that? Why would he flip them upside down to say, this is my mission, right? So one, we have common ground as a people. We're on equal footing because this is God's mission. It's not our mission. And it, if you look at the great commission that God's entrusted us as God's saying, all right, guys, I need you to take care of this because I don't know how else to do it. You're probably exhausted and guilty most of the time, or you've got like another year left in the tank. Keep working for another year before you realize maybe God's up to something more than making sure I'm a busy bee out in the world. Maybe God has another agenda than what if God and all he's asking us to do, he could actually do it, right? Like God could actually do the Great Commission better than we could. So why is he inviting us along with it? That's another sermon. Uh, how often do we in the church think about our strategies or, or we think about our efforts and, uh, you know, what will have the most gospel impact, right? You, we've heard these phrases. I, I've never heard somebody in the church or online be like, man, it would have such kingdom impact if this really poor homeless person that I passed on my way to work would come to Christ. Like, we don't think that way. What do we think? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, did you hear that Tom Brady has become friends with this celebrity pastor? And if Tom Brady became a Christian, think about what could happen, right? How often have you heard somebody, a young guy say, you know what, for my ministry, I wanna live an ordinary faithful life rooted in the same neighborhood for 40 or 50 years and see what God might do with that. Instead, we say, I'm gonna start this ministry. That's gonna do something amazing that no one's ever seen before. And we're gonna change the world and we're gonna buy a movie station and we're, or TV station and make movies. And we're gonna change the, you know, all these huge thinking that it's our efforts, our strategy, our, and God's like, man, I don't work that way. 
I'm not, I don't need the impressive. I don't need the sexy or the flashy. I don't need the strategic. He says, you know, like, I am the Lord your God. There is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, saying all my purposes will stand and I will do whatever I please. He doesn't say like, I really hope you guys come up with a winsome charismatic strategy to make my mission move forward. So the point is, is James is saying, listen, you guys, everyone is qualified for the mission of God because it's God's mission, not your mission. We have incredible common ground. It's what makes favoritism such a problem. It belittles the role other people have in the kingdom of God, in the mission of God. God uses what looks foolish and weak to us. Not only do we have common ground because of the nature of God's mission, but also the law of God. Verse 10, the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all of God's laws. Common ground because you're all a mess. Um, It's one of the things I've learned as a pastor. Uh, Life is hard, for everybody. Um, Here's another way to understand. Let's have a little thought experiment here. This is what James is saying. Um, Let's pretend for a moment that we care about Father's Day. All the dads know we don't care about Father's Day, right? It comes and it goes and we mow the lawn or we do whatever you do on Father's Day. But let's just take for a moment and pretend we care about Father's Day 30% as much as we care about Mother's Day. You know what I'm saying. Front row knows what I'm saying. Uh, The dads aren't laughing because you know it's going to come back and get you at home, right? Yeah. Uh, So um, mom gets dressed up, right? Let's Let's call her Susan. Susan gets this nice white dress on. Going, we're going to go look good going to church. And, but then Johnny is sick, which if you have a little kid, they're sick every day or every third day. And Johnny throws up right before, I mean, right before church. We're going to load him in the car. And Susan gets a, she gets a little bit of uh, the puke on her, right? I don't also say it. You moms know what I'm talking about. That's why Mother's Day is such a big deal. You get that way more than fathers do, okay? I get it most of the time. But it's not so much that you like got to go change and you're running late. So you come with just a little bit you just got a little bit of puke on you. And you walk in and you see Stephanie. And Stephanie's had a really bad morning. You walk into the church lobby and Stephanie's like, she's got child vomit all over. Like, there's no hiding it. And, and Susan is like, I'm not so bad, right? I only have a little bit of puke on me. She's got puke all over her. What a mess. I can't believe she came to church. And then everybody else is watching this scenario unfold and be like, y'all both are gross. Like, you... <laughs> You both should go home, right? If someone's like, you could have a little puke on you or a lot of puke on you, I think most of us would say, is no puke an option, right? Like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just none. And I'm sorry I had to talk about vomit. I just don't know. Like, it's nasty either way, right? And I don't, I don't really know a better example right now. Uh, so, so, so many of us come to church scared because uh, we're hiding something or you think that you've got the market cornered on being a mess, um, you think you've got the, you're the one who's done. I mean, we hear it all the time in the church. Like, if you only knew what I would, I've done. It's like, one, I've, there's someone in our church who's done something worse than you. I can almost guarantee it. And two, it won't, like, we have this wonderful, if you're a Christian, you should have this wonderful assumption with every other human being that they've done unbelievable things, that they're broken, that they're messed, that they're scared, that their life has been hard. Like, that is true for everybody. Like, we are the fellowship of the lawbreakers. We are the fellowship of the sinners, of the broken, of the needy, of the messy. So ultimately, what's happening here is an invitation to become a community of equality, equal value, equal standing before God, equally useful in the mission of God. And that should be simple enough, right? Or the sense of like, man, let's just, we're all in level playing field. Let's not show favoritism anymore. Um, I think what James is doing in this interesting story that he gives us, though, is he's, it's a subtle invitation for us to expose our blind spots. And listen, they're called, um, 
I don't have it in my car, but I've driven cars with blind spot monitoring. And you know what I'm saying? Have you ever driven one of those cars? The light blinks at you to tell you when there's a car that's in your... Why does it blink at you? Because you can't see it. That's why it's called a blind spot. If you're like, I always wondered what that phrase means. It's something you can't see and you need somebody else to tell you, which means there's going to be things I'm about to say that you're probably going to disagree with, but it's a blind spot. So you need someone else to tell you and you need to believe James when he says it's better to be quick to listen and slow to speak, right? This would be a great week to go to community group. This would be a great week to invite someone to coffee and ask you to speak into your life. So we have this hypothetical situation, okay, with wealthy person and a poor person. One's given a good seat, the other isn't. James has to make it clear that these distinctions, uh, he says this discrimination is evil. Why does he have to make it clear that it's evil? I think the only explanation is because they didn't think it was, right? They didn't, they didn't see it. And you could make a great churchy argument here, right? So the ushers give the, the wealthy guy a seat up front. There was a building campaign going on after all, and they wanted to really impress him. The poor guy smelled kind of funny, and he had change in his pocket. So he was loud, and they didn't want to mess up the, the live stream, so they sat him in the back, you know? And, and the ushers would say, like, we didn't say he had to leave, right? We still gave him a seat. We still said he could come in. I'm not a classist, right? I don't hate poor people. And, and James is saying, listen, you don't see what's happening here. There's a blind spot here. There's something evil that's motivating you to do this thing, even though it sounds good. And have you ever noticed how partiality always favors the wealthy, the strong, the, the attractive, and how it always bears down on the minority, the disadvantaged, the weak, the poor? So listen, here, we're going to get uncomfortable here. And if your first thought is how this applies to somebody else, or if your first thought is how you really hope you're going to forward this to your aunt because she really needs to hear this message, right? Like we're talking about your blind spots. And if you find yourself wanting to jump it onto somebody else, that's probably your blind spot that's being poked at here, okay? So let's just, let's all be a mess together. We see the wealthy, the attractive, the beautiful, and we think they could provide something for us. I've never heard someone say, man, I wish I could show up to that party with a smelly homeless person right? I would look so much better if I was walking around in this beat up old nasty car or something like that. You know, we, we think that the wealthy, the powerful, the attractive, they could do something for us, help us be something. And this is a rejection of God's mission. It's a misunderstanding of his law. It's just a flat denial of the gospel. And so many of us hide these evil motives behind good sounding language, stuff that sounds appropriate or sounds churchy. And of course, I'm not a this or a that, Right? Of course not. Of course I don't show favoritism or, you know, and like here's just the elephant in the room. Like how much of my life has been filled with people yelling at me. I am not a racist, right? I am not a sexist. I am not, you know, 10 years ago, while pastors in the SBC are telling women, don't report this abuse, hide this, be quiet, just repent and forgive your abuser. They're from the stage saying we value all people. Or we came up with this great complementarian theology that talked about the equal value of all people while men are at home abusing their wives, right? Like, hello. There's very few of us that are walking around saying, oh yes, of course, I hold this prejudice in my heart. Oh yes, of course, I am this kind of a discriminator. And what James is saying is it's because you don't see it. So here, here's, an, here's an example. I recently, Bobby gave me this book, uh, that did the study looking at people's perception versus their reality. So I've, I've used scripture to try to show you blind spots. And boy, we could give you about 75 more verses. Uh, a recent study came out, okay? These are scientists, sociologists, doing a study based on 
people's self-perception compared to reality. So how do the way people see themselves compare to the way they are in reality? And at the end of the study, here's one one example that was in this book. Uh, They asked people to make a charitable donation at the end of the study. And the people who most fervently believed they were generous, who said, yes, I'm very generous, were the most fervent about their generosity, gave two and a half times less than the people who said they weren't generous at all. Uh, The conclusion the the psychologists made from this was that the more fervently you believe you are something, the less likely you are to actually be that way. I mean, they saw it when it comes to being caring, when it came to being fair, when it came to being generous. How strongly do you believe you don't show favoritism? How strongly do you believe that you aren't a this or you aren't a that? And that doesn't mean that if you think, if you believe strongly that you're not that, that it means you are. But if you buck up and get angry and get defensive and you see these strong reactions, it's worth paying attention. To be a community of equality, we must expose our blind spots. We must see the things that we don't see. How do we do that? Well, we need help. We need outside help. We need to take people seriously when they come and speak to us. Um, so when your friend calls you, when the pastors talk to you, when the, the, your wife talks to you or whoever, listen to them. Get, give a few moments of consideration that this could be true. When your friends all say this is a bad idea, you know how much pain would be saved in our church if we started listening to our friends? I think one of the best things you can do personally is to find ways to begin engaging the margins of society with mercy. And and we'll see what James says here. And here's the principle I want you to realize, though. If we don't actively, actively, consciously, with effort, actively seek to root out the sin of favoritism from our hearts and our community, we become complicit in the sufferings and the oppression of the poor, of the disadvantaged, of the underrepresented. Listen to James' progression here. He says, whatever you say, whatever you do, remember that you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. So this is step one, right? He's like, remember the law that sets you free. And so the law has kind of two movements, the rules of God. The first one is to convince you, you can't keep the rules, right? And if you're still not sure about that, if you think you have it in you to go follow the rules and be a good person, take the 10 commandments and see if you can do them for a week, right? For a week. Don't want something that somebody else has. Don't lie to some, like good luck. Don't think about murdering the person who cut you off with the Make America Great Again sticker, right? Like, make it a week. So one, it tells you, you won't be able to, comp- you won't be able to obey. You, you won't be able um, to fulfill the law. But second, the law will lead you to Christ who has fulfilled the law. And not only did he live a perfect life of obedience for you, but he also paid the debt that your sin incurred. The, the sin of partiality is a, is a flat denial of the gospel of grace. So the, the first move against it must be a reaffirmation of the gospel of grace. The, the wealthy, the strong, the powerful, they cannot provide for me something that I don't already have in Christ. My identity is secure. And we learn to believe this, to get it down into our souls as we show mercy. And this is the final lesson James gives us. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. I mean, this is almost identical what Jesus taught in the parable of the, uh, the sheep and the goats. We looked at it a few weeks ago. He starts this section with a, like, a, 
a realization or an instruction that your faith will be assessed based on your relationships. And he ends here again, talking about your faith being evaluated or God looking for it on the basis of relationships. James is saying the test of true faith is mercy. And mercy biblically is the meeting of practical needs of those people around you. Uh, A few weeks ago, we defined it as compassion and action to meet practical everyday needs. And and this is, I hear this all the time and it drives me crazy. I'm like quite angry right now. And so I'm trying to be like a composed Christian at the moment. Um, This is why I have such a problem with the, the idea that Christians should just preach the gospel, right? Have you heard that before? I just wish our churches would just stick to preaching the gospel. So can someone agree with me that they've heard that or they've seen somebody on the internet say, just preach the gospel, stop talking about these issues. Thanks for the head nods because I'm uncomfortable. Um, So one, can you imagine if God was content with just preaching the gospel to you? Like, what if he's like, Jesus, here's the deal. I'm gonna give you future technology. It's called a megaphone. I want you to walk around Galilee and just shout the gospel at everybody, right? Well, what matters is your soul. What matters is your eternal destiny. So I'm just gonna walk around telling people to believe in me and that will take care of things. Like what would have happened if Jesus hadn't actively obeyed the laws of God? If he hadn't actually healed the sick, if he had looked at your circumstance when your back was against the wall, when you were filled with desperation, he's like, don't worry about it because you're, you're going to heaven one day, right? Like, do you, you see how inadequate the preaching of the gospel was to your own life. Thanks be to God, he actually showed up and did something for us, right? Like he cared for us. He met us in our needs. And then even more so than that, God is telling us over and over in the Bible, say what you want, but I'll know how true what you're saying is by the way you treat the marginalized, the way you treat the poor, the way you treat the oppressed. You know, Jesus doesn't say they'll know you're my disciples by your theology. They'll know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And good theology always moves us to healthier relationships. It always moves us to the margins and the struggling. Like, here's an example of this playing out in the scriptures, okay? We become a community of equality, aware of our blind spots by engaging the margins with mercy, willing to hear from it. So in Acts chapter six, there's a minority, an oppressed minority in the church, the Greeks. And then you have this majority culture, the Jews. And, and the Greeks come to the apostles and they say, listen, man, like our wives aren't being, our, our widows aren't being taken care of. And it's because we're Greeks. There's racism going on here. We're not being taken care of. The apostles get together and they say like, hey, This is a real deal. And so we're gonna make sure that these people get taken care of. But who do they pick? Go look at the names in Acts chapter six. They pick Greeks. They pick minorities. They pick the underrepresented to go and care for them. You see what's going on there? Like their eyes are opened to an issue. They take it seriously. They moved to the margins. They empowered the underrepresented to go and care, to to, to deal with a real issue. The safest question for us to leave with is who is on the margins in our church? I mean, that's the least threatening question that that I know how to leave us with. Because if you want to go much farther, like the blind spots that will be revealed in us will will be deep. Who, Who feels like they can't come to our church? Who feels like they're not welcome here? Who feels like they need to, I don't know, block you on social media or they can't come to your house or they get nervous around you?
You know, last week a poll came out that said 68% of white evangelicals think our nation doesn't need to care or accept refugees. These are people who are fleeing their countries based on violence, based on disease. And the largest group of people in the country that said we have nothing, no responsibility towards them are us people. Like the people to whom God has given the words of life. The people to whom God says, if you show no mercy, you will receive no mercy. On the last day, I will say, you know, like, you never gave me a drink. You didn't give me any food. Is, that's either a huge blind spot or it's just willful disobedience because we're white Americans who know better than God. I don't know. What do you want to make with that? More than any other people group, religious or not, in the United States, white evangelicals said, this is not a problem. Despite, despite the, the witness of the scriptures, the commands of God. Is that a blind spot or is it willful disobedience? Will any number of verses convince you? One small example of the many being exposed in our tribe right now. Oh, can you imagine the situation you'd been in if Jesus came and only preached the gospel to you? Can you imagine what your life would look like if he never cared for your practical needs, if he hadn't sent men, women, and angels to come meet your practical needs, if he hadn't bore your weaknesses on his body? Do you see that? Like, he didn't just give you words. He bore your weakness. He carried your sorrows. If we experience the love of Jesus personally, if you come this morning wanting to experience his love for you more, I plead with you, become a community that goes to the margins. Be become a community that roots out, gets rid of, destroys all favoritism, that learns to be present with people and care for them based on their status and dignity as human beings made in the image of God. May we become a people eager to extend the mercy that we ourselves have received. So this is why we root our services week in and, and week out on the mercy of God that came. He showed up for us. Um, and, and all we do now is a response. Uh, we remember this by remembering that on the night Jesus was betrayed. So listen, if you're here and you're feeling beat up right now or like you're a huge failure, you haven't done enough, like, can you imagine being one of the guys that betrayed Jesus the night before he died for you, right? Like, there is room for the broken at the table of God. Thanks be to God. Like, there is no illusion here that any of us are free from prejudice. If you're sitting here like, I have no discrimination. There is no one in my life who is those people. That's a blind spot. All of us do this. All of us are in need of God's mercy. And so he looks at us on the night he was betrayed and he says, this is my body broken for you in the midst of all of your waywardness, in the midst of all of your confusion. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. I've carried your weakness. I've bore your sins. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and said, this is what seals your relationship with God. It's my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. What James is trying to say is if this is true for you, you will go to the people who are helpless and needy. You will go to the people who are underrepresented, who are oppressed, who are marginalized. And we will become a place of radical equality, aware of our blind spots, empowering people as the image bearers of God that they are. 
Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Uh, wine has a piece of twine wrapped around it, and we'll have uh, stations up front and in the back, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left and your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come remember the mercy of God. Let's pray.